Our Future Now is produced by Goal 17 Media, storytellers for the common good. Whatever administration it might be, whether Democrat, Republican, or independent, they should be laser focused on protecting the next generation. Hi, everyone. This is Natalie Mebane. I'm co-founder of the National Children's Campaign, and welcome to our official podcast, Our Future Now. I'm joined here with my co-host, Jonah Gottlieb. Hi, everyone. My name is Jonah Gottlieb. I am another co-founder and the executive director of the National Children's Campaign. Jonah, I'm really happy that we're back together today to talk about what's going on. As you can imagine, wrapping up my senior year of high school, kind of in the home stretch, and so teachers are seeing what extra work they can give us just in the last few weeks before the end of the year. And so that's been pretty crazy to try and get all that done on top of all the lobbying work we've been doing. We'd really hope that teachers and administrators are adhering to the guidelines that we set forth, talking about what schools can be doing to better take care of their students during this crisis. We made some guidelines, put them on our website, nationalchildrenscampaign.org, talking about some tips for students, for teachers, everyone. You and I have been hitting the hill pretty hard, actually, virtually for some lobby meetings this week on the Rewind Act, which just came out this past week on Tuesday, really addressing the next stimulus package that's coming out next week to address the coronavirus. So Trump and McConnell in the last stimulus package tried their hardest to put billions of dollars into it for the fossil fuel industry to prop up the CEOs instead of fighting for workers and for their families. And so we were able to stop them on the last stimulus bill from doing that. But we know that they're going to try and do it again and do whatever they can to bail out the fossil fuel industry. And so what the Rewind Act does, which was introduced by Congresswoman Barragon in the House and Senator Merkley in the Senate, make sure that the Trump administration and that Congress cannot include any money to bail out the fossil fuel CEOs in the next stimulus package. And so we've been doing a lot of work on the Hill this week, meeting with different committee chairs and other members of Congress to push as hard as we can to make sure that our champions in Congress are really making sure that our government is fighting for workers and their families instead of these wealthy corporations again. Hopefully, if we push enough, push enough with our coalitions, push enough with our friends on the Hill to hopefully include it in the next stimulus package, which we are expecting out soon from the House. So we are still fighting for our workers, fighting for you know our campaign, your workers, my family, and making sure that those most impacted from coronavirus are the ones that received aid. Jonah, you mentioned to me during those meetings, you were talking about some personal stories in your community of people who have been most impacted by coronavirus because of climate change. So being from Northern California in 2017, 2018, and 2019, we've had historically devastating fires in my community. And I have friends who, due to the smoke damage in their lungs, they're immunocompromised and thus super at risk of serious health implications if they get coronavirus. And many of them are also frontline workers who don't have the protections they need to be safe at work. And so what we're seeing right now is we're seeing that our government is ignoring working families and laying out the red carpet for fossil fuel companies and actually supporting corporations that helped cause their health issues during a pandemic instead of helping 
the very people who are being harmed right now by this pandemic. That's something to really think about, that your community already, being in Sonoma County in Northern California, is already so impacted by the effects of these wildfires. And I saw an article just this week that said they're expecting the wildfires to be really bad this year. And it, because of, you know, increased drought and just sort of even the preparation of knowing essentially the next predictable disaster in your life. I mean, they've become predictable, scheduled disasters. And then having to deal with obviously coronavirus and that being the urgency and the emergency that it is, but also knowing that your emergency dealing with climate change and dealing with the pollution that comes from the fires doesn't go away. It doesn't pause. You will have to deal with both at the same time. It gives me a lot of comfort knowing that there are people out there who are addressing the issue of the intersection of the climate crisis and COVID. One of these amazing people who has dedicated his whole life to talking about some of these issues is Mustafa Santiago Ali, who joined the EPA as a student after beginning working on social justice issues at the age of 16. But we're so grateful to have Mustafa on board. Thank you so much for being on today. Thank you for having me. And thank you for all the incredible work that you and others are continuing to do. Of course. So, like I said, you got started at such a young age and got involved in this big federal agency at such a young age. And I'm just wondering, what first inspired you to get involved? Well, I came out of a family of folks where the kids, we all had to figure out what it is that we were going to do. Our parents never told us what we had to work on, but they said, you have to give back. And I used to watch my parents and, and also listen to the stories from my grandparents and others, you know, around civil rights and, and the fights that took place there and, and the evolution and growth that had to happen. I also grew up across the river from an old coal-fired power plant in the community that I grew up in. Hardworking folks, ate healthy, did many of the things, you know, got lots of exercise, but we ended up having about a 40 to 50% cancer rate in that community. And as I was growing up, I was trying to figure out what was going on, what had happened. And I was just super, super blessed that a number of the early environmental justice leaders, some civil rights leaders and others adopted me at a very young age and, and mentored me. And I was given an opportunity there at the Environmental Protection Agency to be a part of the founding of the Office of Environmental Equity, which became the Office of Environmental Justice. So, you know, uh, I come out of a faith-based family and, and I believe God places you where you're supposed to be, but you have the opportunity to, to either answer or be drug along. So I was just blessed that I actually answered. That's the first time, Mustafa, that I've really heard your sort of your origin story. And I didn't realize even that you had joined into fighting for environmental justice at such a young age, really inspiring to see starting that young into where you are now and helping to create the EPA's environmental justice whole department. Thinking about like what Jonah has mentioned that his community is experiencing, right? They have to deal with being exposed to this pollutant, the wildfire smoke, and how it's damaged the lungs of people that he's friends with, and then them now being more susceptible if they do get coronavirus. What would you say for you and your observations? We've seen a lot of that same connection to communities that are exposed to pollution and their susceptibility to coronavirus. It's amazing in the fact that we know what the baseline numbers are and to see some of the actions that go on by administrations, whether on the federal or the state level, it is almost mind boggling. We know 100,000 people are dying prematurely from air pollution every year in our country. 
We know millions more are getting sick. And we know that disproportionately as communities of color, lower wealth communities and, and indigenous folks, they are the sacrifice zones, the dumping grounds where we place everything that nobody else wants. And we know that when you live in these locations, being exposed to PM 2.5, PM 10, PM 1, ultrafine particulates, things that may not mean a whole lot to folks, but we know that those things are causing chronic medical conditions. You know, they're causing cancer clusters, they're causing liver and kidney disease, they're causing heart diseases, and they're also causing lung diseases. And we know that these chronic medical conditions make folks more susceptible to COVID-19, to the coronavirus. We know in our country, we got 24 million people who have asthma, and we know 7 million kids have asthma. For us to roll back basic protections makes no sense whatsoever. But we also have to really be focused on the fact that there are certain folks in our society who continue to be the ones that continue to get all the things nobody else wants. And unfortunately, when we have that type of a scenario, we're also doing a number of other things. We're weakening the opportunity for our medical system to truly be what it should be. We're weakening people's opportunity to garner wealth. The current administration has rolled back so many EPA regulations in wake of coronavirus. They have used it as an excuse to say that industry can no longer be regulated and that they in fact have to regulate themselves. Everything from our car standard to our overall air and water pollution, it's really ridiculous to see that in a time when there is a lung disease going around, harming people's lungs, that they are actually increasing air pollution as we speak. It's more than unfortunate. There is a, a criminality aspect to when you know you're intentionally doing something that is going to shorten people's lives. And when you roll back the clean car rule, when you roll back some of the things that have been going on around methane, when you roll back or remove yourself from the Paris Climate Accord or the clean power plant, you know that you are exposing folks to more pollution. EPA has said that more people were going to get sick and unfortunately more people are going to die and not enough people have paid attention to it. When we talked about that 100,000 people who are dying prematurely from air pollution, that's more people who are dying from air pollution than are dying from gun violence. That's more people who are dying from air pollution than are dying from car crashes. And all of those are super important issues. And, and we focus on them and, and we give them attention and we put resources and hopefully we begin to think critically about what are the statutes, what are the legislation that's necessary to protect folks. So when the EPA does these types of things, knowing that they are going to, even if we didn't have COVID-19, that more people were going to die, that's criminal. Now overlaid with COVID-19, we know that in this particular moment, we've got about 75,000 people have lost their lives, a million point three who have been infected. And we know those numbers are not truly representative of all of the impacts that are currently happening because we don't have testing everywhere. And some of the testing is faulty. So for EPA or the current administration to know these facts, for me, it sends a clear message that the lives in these communities, whether we're talking about communities of color or lower wealth white communities or on indigenous land, that those lives just don't seem to matter as much because if they did, then they would make sure that enforcement is actually happening because we know that they're traditionally have been business and industry that have been good players and have tried to do the right things. But we also know that there are a number who, even when enforcement was happening, when inspections were happening on a fairly regular basis, 
that there are some who still try to get around the law and others who just balk at the regulations that are in place. So for you to give free reign to certain industries and some of the players that are inside of there, again, just contributes to the fact that this administration currently has shown no concern for the lives of the folks who are most vulnerable. Mustafa, I know that in addition to being an advisor to the National Children's Campaign, you also serve on the advisory board of Union for Concerned Scientists. And they recently released a report called Endangering Generations that talks about how the Trump administration has really assaulted science and then by association assaulted children's health. So I'm wondering, what have you seen specifically that's really harmed the youngest Americans? First, let's start on the science aspect. All of us have been blessed to go to school at varying levels, and science is one of those subjects that our parents said, hey, you got to do well in science, you got to do well at math, you got to do well at English. Our parents have always seen value in that. Every previous administration has seen value in science until we got to this administration, which has not valued science and has shown that by many of the advisory committees, removing people with science backgrounds and putting other individuals on to these advisory committees. And there's some intentionality in that. Folks know that if they can manipulate science, then they can weaken policy. If you can weaken policy, then you can allow all kinds of nefarious behaviors or behaviors that are not beneficial to our health to actually happen because of that process. Now, we also know that when we have these impacts that are happening to adults, younger people and children are impacted even at a greater level because their bodies are developing. Children breathe in so much more pollution because they're out playing, they're outside in the environment. Any of these toxic chemicals that adults are exposed to has an even greater impact on young people. One of those things that became very apparent just a few years ago was what happened in Flint, Michigan. Folks had worked diligently to begin to address the lead issue because they knew of the neurological damage when a young person is exposed to it. You find very similar types of things when you look at air pollution. There are a number of studies out there that talk about the impacts from air pollution. There are a number of studies that talk about the impacts from mercury on developing fetuses and women who are of a childbearing age and, and the interactions that happen in that space. We can go down the laundry list of the impacts that happen to children and younger people from the exposures from all these different toxic chemicals that are out there. So whatever administration it might be, whether Democrat, Republican, or independent, they should be laser focused on protecting the next generation. Because not only do you have to deal with the impacts to your body, but you're also going to have to deal with the economic impacts that you're going to have to cover as well. Because we know, especially with air pollution, it is the driver. All these emissions that are coming out from the use of fossil fuel are warming up our oceans, warming up our planet, and causing the things that you mentioned earlier, contributing to the wildfires because of the droughts. We're about to move into hurricane season. And we all know, or some folks at least remember because they lived through it, or they remember the pictures of Katrina. And now that we're in this COVID-19 moment, can you imagine 10,000 people having to go into the Superdome again? How could you possibly think about social distancing or quarantining yourself in that type of a situation? Of course, children and younger people are in many instances having to deal with even greater impacts from that. You talked a lot about this administration and 
you served at the EPA for 24 years and then left one year into Donald Trump's presidency. I'm wondering if you could just kind of take us back through how things went down when you left and how things have gone since you've left. There's a great poetess who once said that when someone shows you who they are, believe them. I believe when the current president told folks that he was going to roll back a number of protections and a number of the other things that he shared with the country, but we all hope that it wouldn't be to the level that they actually began to make moves. So, you know, let's just have some real talk. There are some folks in Washington, D.C. who operate from theory, who there's really a distance between them and everyday people. That was never my career. I was always out there with communities, even though I did work in Washington, D.C. and on Capitol Hill and the White House and all that kind of stuff. I spent real time with real people. So that meant that I have to look people in the eye. I've seen people lose folks over the years. I've seen kids grow up. And I knew that this administration was going to make more people sick and they were going to unfortunately take people's lives prematurely. And I knew that I couldn't be a part of that. And that's the reason that I resigned. And a reporter told me a million people read my letter. And my letter was just to help them to understand what they had, programs that communities and others had worked diligently to get in place to help them to just have the basics. And a number of the grant programs and other things that people for 20, 30 years had been working on, the enforcement work that was never enough, but at least there was something that was there that people could hold on to. And when I knew that all of these things were going to be taken away, that were going to be eliminated or minimized, I knew the impacts that were going to happen on those communities who took a long time to build that trust. And I owed it to them because they had put so much trust and faith in me to stand up and do the right thing. That's what I tried to do to the best of my ability. Since your work at the EPA, you moved on to Hip Hop Caucus. We've also done some work with them in the past, but I'm wondering if you could just, for our listeners, elaborate and talk to the folks at home about what you do there. Oh my gosh, the Hip Hop Caucus was just such a fantastic opportunity. I'll always be thankful to Reverend Yearwood. One, for the creation of the Hip Hop Caucus. It came together from a number of different organizations 15 years ago. Folks that some people will know, Sean P. Diddy Combs or Puffy, depending on what age group you're in, Russell Simmons, Jay-Z and some others and the various organizations melded together to create the Hip Hop Caucus, which really gives young people, communities of color, returning citizens a voice in voting and making sure that people understand the power that exists inside of their vote and how it can really make change happen. And also that you don't have to wait for somebody else to be the one. If you can't find somebody who represents the things that are going on that need attention, you can do it yourself. And then, of course, on the other side was our focus on climate issues, environmental justice issues, and the beauty of the Hip Hop Caucus. And this is a part of the paradigm change that that I know has to happen if we're going to win on climate change issues and other issues, is the artists and entertainers who are part of that. And how when they begin to integrate these very important issues into their platforms, it changes and it moves culture. We have an evolution that's happening inside of our culture and it just helps to speed it up. I often joke with folks, you know, I know a hundred of the best scientists around the world and when they say something, about 10% of people pay attention. But when Beyonce says something, 
everybody picks up their phone and they begin to check out what's going on. And a great example of that is when Hurricane Harvey came through in Houston. And when she got engaged in the issue, it brought that additional amount of attention. So whether we're talking about new artists, talking about regional artists or the national artists that many people know, as they begin to get engaged in that, it's a game changer. When we did the Respect My Vote campaign and had all these incredible artists, and when we did the campaign around Divest Invest, Rev and the rest of the crew who was there, and have all these incredible artists who are talking about these issues, it's just a game changer. And the beauty is, young people get this. They understand that this is just a part of the paradigm of change that they're gonna utilize, whether it's a great poet or a rapper or a singer, it's just infused into the steps and the process of educating and innovating and engaging folks. Mustafa, I know that when you were with Hip Hop Caucus, you worked with Antonique Smith and she recorded this incredible cover of Here Comes the Sun and really tied it really in close with these environmental racism and environmental justice issues that you've dedicated your life to. I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the meaning behind that song and how connecting art and music to these issues is so important. Yeah, you know, Antonique's my sister. She is just one of the incredible treasures. When she did the remake of Here Comes the Sun, that Beatles classic, it couldn't have happened at a better moment. When we are realizing the impacts from climate change, uh, the climate emergency that we find ourselves in, but also the fact that there is a brighter future if we are willing to actually get engaged and do the right things now. And the beauty of artistry is that it builds bridges and not walls. It helps to bring folks together. Everybody remembers or knows their favorite song and how it makes them feel. And that's the beauty of the arts, is that it allows us to get away from our ism, ageism, sexism, racism, all the things that sometimes anchor us to negativity and really be focused and connected. It just brought full circle why these issues that we work on are so important, but also the fact that we can win and that we can make real change happen. To all the artivists that are out there, thank you for everything that you continue to do. And to Antonique Smith, continue to be that bright star shining. Mustafa, I remember your resignation letter. And I didn't know it got a million readers. I remember reading it in my office with my coworkers. And we all felt sad because we knew, of course, what EPA was losing. And we knew the reasons, obviously, what the current administration was going to be doing in terms of rolling back regulations, hurting people and their health. And just kind of thinking about that in terms of areas that are already really, really, really suffering with the worst pollution. And what would you say about that in terms of the connection of environmental racism and the fact that the communities that are most impacted by fossil fuels are usually black and brown communities. If you overlay where COVID-19 is having some of its greatest impacts, you will find that in many instances, it's in these hot spots. You mentioned Cancer Alley. Cancer Alley, the name in itself tells you exactly what's going on. Cancer Alley is actually where freed slaves, many of the people who were there, founded their communities. And of course, when they founded their communities, they did it because lots of times there was redlining going on, there was restrictive covenances that happened across the South in some of these communities that I'll talk about, and there's disinvestment in those communities. So sometimes people will say, well, when they would go and look and see miles and miles of petrochemical facilities, they would say, well, why don't you just move? Well, when your house has lost all of its value, 
because, you know, these things have moved into your community and you're already in a medically underserved area, there's not a whole lot of different places you can go. So in Cancer Alley, the particular spots there, you may have a thousand times the rate of cancer that you'll find from the national average. When you go to places like the Manchester community in Houston, Texas, hardworking, Latinx community. When you go there and you roll down your windows, you feel like you're breathing in gasoline fumes. But at the same time, we know Houston has huge rates of impacts that are happening in these hot spots. When you go to Port Arthur, Texas, which is right up the street there on the Gulf Coast, they also have incredible rates that are going on. But it's not just in the South or, you know, in that area. If you go to the 48217, Detroit has a huge amount of impacts that were going on. But if you look in 48217, which is the most polluted zip code in the state of Michigan, you will find an elevated level of infections and deaths that are happening from COVID-19. The thing that I think is slowing down people realizing what's going on is that if people actually began to do the proper amount of testing there, that then adds another piece to the puzzle of why the current administration has to move away from its relationship with the fossil fuel industry. Because not only have these communities been impacted traditionally and have these chronic medical conditions from the pollution, now they're also dying from COVID-19 as another reason why we have to stop polluting these communities with these toxic chemicals. You know, I thank you for saying that because I, I think it's good to really draw that connection and understand that it simply compounds the problems. As Jonah mentioned in the beginning, his community being impacted by the wildfires, it doesn't stop because of coronavirus. It only compounds the impacts. I know the House is planning on coming out with their next stimulus package relating to coronavirus aid. And a lot of groups, environmental orgs, all of us are really pushing heavy to include provisions that really help families, really help workers, really help kids. What would you say are the main things that you're looking for for the federal government to do in the next stimulus package that you really think are going to be the best and most helpful for this work? Well, let's start with the pollution. We've got to address that. We've got to get real enforcement happening again, but the testing that's necessary in those communities so that the sampling's done and then we can begin to talk about the various needs that exist inside those communities. We also have to deal with the fact that many of these communities are medically underserved. We've got 20 million folks in our country who live in physician deserts, which also contributes to the impacts that are going on, both from the pollution side and the COVID-19 side. We also have to deal with the housing. What you'll find is that we have substandard housing in many of these communities. Lots of folks don't talk about the indoor air pollution that's going on in these communities, the mold and other things that are also contributing to many of these chronic conditions that we need to get our arms around. The other thing that I often talk about is got to also deal with the fact that there's a mounting set of debt that's happening. We've had a number of candidates who talked about the fact that we have 80 million people in our country are uninsured and underinsured. So how are we going to address this medical debt? You can go get the test, and the test has been covered, but all the other medical costs continue to contribute. So we've got to address that. And we've also got to address the fact that we've got 500,000 homeless people in our country, and that gets to the water quality issues. You know, when the virus first started, we were telling people to go out, wash your hands, use soap and water, and yes, 
that is incredibly important. But if you're homeless, that makes it extremely difficult. And if you're someone in Detroit and a number of other cities, both in the urban and rural context, the water shutoffs that have been going on also contributes to people's lack of access to do this personal hygiene that we know is very helpful in the moment around COVID. Those are just some of the things. If we're truly trying to strengthen people's bodies, then we've got to make sure that they have access to healthy and clean food. For the billions of dollars that we've given to business and industry to help them to get propped up, we should be focusing equally on making sure that everyday folks have these basic amenities to be not only protected in the moment, but for us to be able to start moving forward in a way that helps people to move from surviving to thriving. Absolutely. I think that the most important thing our government can do right now is just take a stand for working people, for their families. I know that one of the ways that we've been trying to do that is with our Your Workers, My Family campaign. I know that on our last episode, we talked with Yolian and Victory, the two founders of that. And they talked about how simply by highlighting the stories of frontline workers and really drawing that contrast between what they need and who's actually getting money and resources from our government right now. When we're able to highlight stories and uplift the voices of those who are on the front lines and moving our economy forward during a pandemic, we're really able to draw this distinction between giving them the support they need and what our government is currently trying to do which is instead giving support only to the fossil fuel CEOs and other big organizations and corporations. So for everyone who's been listening today and learning about really the connection of environmental justice and coronavirus, we really would love for you to take action and to look up the Rewind Act, which was introduced by Representative Barragon and Senator Merkley just this past week. We want you to call your members of Congress. We want you to email them. We want you to tweet at them and to tell them that you want the next stimulus package to be a package that really helps working people and really helps families and helps kids. We're going to be conducting a number of environmental justice roundtables across the country everywhere from the Gulf Coast to Alaska, where we will bring together frontline leaders, frontline organizations, members from Capitol Hill, mayors, and a number of others to make sure that people understand truly what's happening on the ground, but also beginning to talk about what are the steps that are necessary to make our communities whole, whether we're talking about the stimulus bills that are in development or future legislation on a personal level. Everyone can literally pick up your phone and begin to create videos talking about what's happening in your community, but also what are your expectations of elected officials and others. We just have to realize that we actually have power unless we give it away. Amazing. I know that National Children's Campaign is going to be helping lead these roundtables along with our great partners, Union for Concerned Scientists the NAACP, many members of Congress, mayors and other elected officials, and amazing advocates for working people, for their families, and for everyone impacted by these issues. Thank you, Mustafa, for being on the podcast today. And for our listeners, I think the best way that they can thank you for sharing your wisdom with them is by getting involved, like you said, by picking up the phone and by telling their stories to their elected officials, whether that's calling their offices, whether that's sharing it on social media, whether that's getting involved in an advocacy organization near you. We all continue to be great. Let me know how I can help. Be blessed. 
Thank you for joining us today for Our Future Now, the podcast of the National Children's Campaign. Our Future Now is brought to you by Goal 17 Media, storytellers for the common good. At the National Children's Campaign, we fight for America's 74 million children, youth, and their families. For our listeners at home, I really encourage you all to please get involved with your workers, my family campaign, visit us on social media, and tell your story. I'm Natalie Meebane. I'm Jonah Gottlieb. Join us next week on Our Future Now, and we'll keep fighting for America's children together. 